The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. By the power and the truth of our efforts this day, May all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be content and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity. May all beings everywhere live in peace. This is our prayer. This is our intention. So good evening, everyone. Once the Buddha's disciple Ananda asked him about friendship. Ananda knew that having good and encouraging friends was very important for the path. He even wondered whether having good friends is half the path. No, Ananda, the Buddha told him. Having good friends isn't half of the holy life. Having good friends is the whole of the holy life. The Mejia Sutta is my favorite Pali text about friendship. It tells the story of the eager young monk Mejia who wanted to practice meditation alone in an especially peaceful and beautiful mango grove. But Mejia's meditation was anything but peaceful and beautiful. To his shock, he found his mind a snarl of malicious, lustful, and confused thoughts, probably because his practice was too self-involved. When Mejia rushed back to report his confusing experience, Buddha was not surprised. He took the opportunity to give Mejia another lesson, what he must have hoped was a relevant teaching. Five things induce release of heart and lasting peace, the Buddha told him. First, a lovely intimacy with good friends. Second, virtuous conduct. Third, frequent conversation that inspires and encourages practice. Fourth, diligence, energy, and enthusiasm for the good. And fifth, insight into impermanence. Then for measures further benefit, and to cement the point, the Buddha goes through the list again, this time preceding each of the other items with the first. When there is a lovely intimacy between friends, there is virtuous conduct. When there is a lovely intimacy between friends, there is frequent conversation that inspires and encourages practice. When there is lovely intimacy with friends, diligence, energy, and enthusiasm for the good are present. And finally, when there is lovely intimacy between friends, one is aware of the impermanence of all present. 
To be able to practice with good friends for 5, 10, 20, 30, or 40 years is a special joy. So much comes of it. As you ripen in age, you appreciate the nobility and uniqueness of each friend, the twists and turns of each life, and the gift each has given you. After a while, you begin attending the funerals of your dearest friends, and each loss seems to increase the gravity and preciousness of your own life and makes the remaining friendships even more important. When long friendships with good people along the path of spiritual practice is a central feature of your life, it is almost impossible, just as the Buddha says, for spiritual qualities conducive to awakening not to ripen. For those on the bodhisattva path, loving and appreciating your friends, even when they are difficult, as they sometimes are, is the path's fullness and completion. Friendship ripens and deepens our capacity for compassion. In the Buddhist path, spiritual friendship takes place in the context of community. Life in a Sangha is built on teaching, dedicated meditation practice, and a shared commitment to going beyond self-interest and personal need. Spiritual friendship is less about personal connection than it is about helping one another in faith and goodness to realize, as we say in Zen, our true nature. Sangha friendships are forged and grounded in silence. This is especially true in the Soto Zen tradition I practice, which emphasizes meditation as a shared activity over a long period of time. In ordinary friendships, we might connect right away with lots to share and learn from one another. In Sangha or community life, friendship develops much more slowly. It may take years to share backgrounds and personal stories. Maybe we never do. But in the meantime, we slowly get to know one another intimately in the silent space of the meditation hall. We know each other's hands and feet and facial expressions, how we walk and stand and sit. We see the suffering and the triumph expressed in body language and facial expression. We share the sound of our voices joined in chanting. We hear our groans, our fatigue, the ways we cope when we don't have our usual social strategies available. Often the most unlikely people show up in Buddhist communities, people who under ordinary circumstances would never meet and spend weeks, maybe years together. Yet this desperate group of people manages to find harmony, commonality, and deep mutual appreciation despite their difference. They come to share something more fundamental than their interests and affinities. It is not unusual to be in a community with someone who pushes all your buttons, exactly the sort of person you'd avoid at all costs in ordinary life will appear in your community. There he or she is, your father or sister, childhood nemesis, or ancient school and workplace enemy 
sitting right across from you in the meditation hall. You will have to deal with this person in ways you never would have if left to your own devices. And eventually, they become a valued friend. So, in the normal, ordinary, everyday life, friend or friendship tends to be a word, a word we use to identify discriminatively certain people in our lives we come to maybe like and appreciate. We also have a dualistic approach to friendship and friend. We speak of them as my friend, as opposed to maybe your friend, our friends, as opposed to maybe their friends. But tonight, I want to talk about friend and friendship from the Buddhist point of view. And whenever we talk about friend or friendship in the Buddhist community, we talk about it as a context or paradigm for life. demanded in all communities, spiritual communities, authentic spiritual communities, such as Zen communities, is the requirement that everyone who enters, like everyone in this room tonight, be received as friend, be viewed as friend, be treated as friend. But again, this word friend or friendship operates more as a universal paradigm. For example, Einstein spoke about it when he wrote these words. A human being, he said, is part of the whole called by us universe, limited in time and space. He or she may experience themselves, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of their consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Einstein says to us, that again, in our ordinary, everyday life, our definition of friendship will not suffice in our efforts to especially making a better world. David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, speaks about our world today in this way. For six decades, the worship of the self has been the preoccupation of our culture, molding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self. Capitalism, the meritocracy, and modern world science have normalized selfishness. They have made it seem that the only human motives that are real or this are the self-interested ones, the desire for money, security, status, and power. The rampant individualism of our culture is a catastrophe. The emphasis on self individual success, self-fulfillment, individual freedom, self-actualization is a catastrophe. When a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided and alienated. 
We have seen a shocking rise of mental illness, suicide, and distrust, especially among the young people. We have become too cognitive when we should be more emotional, too utilitarian when we should be using a moral lens, too individualistic when we should be more communal. The whole cultural paradigm has to shift from the mindset of hyper-individualism to a rational, or I'm sorry, to a relational mindset. So whenever we talk about friend or friendship, we talk about the Zen perspective that all things that exist in the universe are interconnected and interdependent. That friendship is a relational context. It has to do with being related to one another. Being related in a way that one is invested in the other's well-being and wholeness. In the Buddhist community, particularly in the Zen community, there is a shared purpose which all of the members of the community uh, agree to, that purpose being singular. May all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. And everything within the community, whether it be meditation practice, whether it be teachings, whether it be emphasis on living a virtuous life, is designed <coughs> towards that singular purpose. May I, by my thoughts, by my words and my actions, liberate all beings everywhere from suffering and its causes. In a spiritual community, in addition to a shared purpose, there is a willingness in all of its members as friends to one another to care about the very best for each other. And by the very best we mean encouraging one another to live and practice in ways that bring about their own liberation from their personal suffering, whether it be physical, mental, psychological, or emotional. And finally, last but not least of all, the truly spiritual community, the Buddhist community, is about taking care of one another. A friend in, a, in the community is not someone that we passively think of occasionally or occasionally get together with for a good time, but more importantly, they are family. Again, in his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks emphasizes that the entire cultural paradigm we find ourselves in currently needs to shift from this me, myself, and I mentality, from this dualistic approach to relationships and so forth, to a more relational one. Einstein says to us, not only is that important, it is quintessential, not for some simple sentimental or romantic idea of friendship, but because we are in fact related. We are in fact interconnected and interdependent. And history continues to prove that whenever we individually or collectively as a society, act differently, there is always an increase in suffering and its causes.
Friendship is the means by which we bring an end to suffering and its causes. The friendship that the Buddha talked about when he said to both Ananda and Maesha, the friendship that is the whole of the spiritual life, is the spiritual practice that makes all living beings, all sentient beings, relatable and available to one another. So tonight I want to invite you to think about friendship in this way and possibly what comes up for you in your thoughts about the barriers of behaving this way in society. Often, and much too often, we practice spirituality in a more secretive and private way. We go to the monastery or maybe to a yoga class. We practice and get what we need out of that. And then the rest of our life, we find ourselves caught up in the humdrum, coming and going, you know, busy lives where we may occasionally think of someone who we consider to be a friend or someone who is a spouse suffering from anxiety or stress or listen to our children as they reach out to us in their worryment. David Brooks points out that the rise in mental illness among youth is never seen before in our society. The suicidal rate of children from the ages, think of this, of 12 years old and up has increased. Friendship is not just essential. It is the most important practice in the spiritual life. How do I befriend another? How do I sustain and bring fuel to that friendship? How do I feed it? How do I nurture it? How do I cultivate it in the ground of my being? It must begin with yourself. Often you have heard me say, I cannot give you what I do not have. So the first friend you need to befriend is yourself, but not in the self-centered way that Brooks points at that we find so rampant in our culture today. By the self, we mean your true self. Whenever we talk about fundamental Buddhist teachings, fundamental to all of those teachings is that each and every one of us in this room tonight and all beings possess what Buddhism calls basic goodness. We are made up, this, up of the stuff that makes friendships, that makes relationships. We are by our true nature loving. We are by our true nature kind creatures and compassionate creatures and empathetic creatures. But what happens to us in our daily living when we find ourselves in the pursuit of our personal happiness, forgetting that that pursuit will always be endless and insatiable, when we find ourselves caught up in that, we forget the, our own basic goodness and find ourselves behaving in ways that we would never think possible if someone were to point it out to us. So befriending oneself has to do more with cultivating the ground for awakening to these true nature characteristics and then nurturing these characteristics in ways that have been well honed and proven to work. We meditate not to just find peace of mind and body or manage our stress, 
We meditate so that we can be more relational, more intimate in our relationships with others in the world. Our prayers are never for ourselves alone. We pray by the power and the truth of our efforts, may all beings everywhere. In this we include all sentient beings, wishing them that they may be free from sorrow and suffering and its causes. It is because of our scientifically proven and Buddhist philosophy of interconnectedness and interdependency we pray and meditate and act in these ways. Befriending oneself requires a willingness on our part to take up a particular practice that I've spoken at great lengths about over 44 years, the behavior of self-criticism and judgment. Once again, Buddha teaches us that our basic goodness is true for us, no matter our status in the world, whether we are wealthy or poor, whether we are popular or not, whether we are successful or a failure, whether we live in the streets or in the palace, each of us possess fundamentally the basic goodness of loving kindness and compassion and benevolence. And that each of us are interconnected in a way with one another that certainly we find that when there is suffering with a friend of ours, we quickly want to know almost naturally want to know what we can do to relieve them of that suffering. Many years ago, I talked about an experiment that took place in the hospital one day. Doctors wanted to understand more clearly why infants, newly born infants in the nursery, cried whenever a baby started to cry, all of the infants would let off crying. The experiment went on for several months until they fully realized that the cries of the other infants hearing the one infant cry was empathy. It was almost as if the group was calling out to the nurse or doctor about the one child who was in need of something in the moment. We are by nature compassionate. We are by nature loving and kind. We are by nature empathetic. And our lives should be a construct of cultivating the ground for these positive qualities that we were born with and may have forgotten along the way, that we take for granted, and then to nurture these qualities by the manner in which we befriend ourselves and others. Nothing can damage a friendship quicker, you know this as well as I do, than criticism and judgment. Nothing can damage our sense of our own wholeness and well-being, our own true Buddha nature, than self-criticism and self-judgment. Surely part of the practice requires us to look into our behavior and to fully appreciate how we may be behaving in unwholesome ways. But in that effort, there is no room for criticism and judgment. The insight is intended to give us means to correct our behavior so that we can again return to a more wholesome and a more nurtured state of mind and body. So friendship with another in the Buddhist community begins with friendship with oneself. 
one commits to working on one's behavior so that one's behavior is harmonious with one's true nature. Just as in our mealtime sutras that we pray whenever we get together on sashins and other retreats, we pray that we may learn to not eat unwholesome ways so that we can, re so that we can receive this food appropriately. Likewise, may we not view other people in unwholesome ways. May we not be so critical of them. This begins by refusing to be self-critical and self-judgmental. The more I liberate myself and to reawaken these natural qualities of loving kindness, compassion, and benevolence, I am able to then better befriend others. Friendship is the paradigm of the universe. The universe by nature is relational. And the more we work to be intimately in relationship with each other, like in the spiritual community, the more we find healing and renewal becomes possible. Several months ago, when we were talking about creating community, I mentioned that we need a new language to speak to each other. We need the language of loving kindness and forgiveness. We need the language of patience we need the language of appreciation. We need to slow down, which happens in the spiritual community. The more and more you devote yourself to meditation, the more and more you begin to see things that previously you missed often because you are always rushing, coming and going. The more and more we quiet our mind and settle our bodies, the more we are able to see our true nature and that seeing inspires us to do the work of cultivating right ground and nurturing ourselves in wholesome ways. The more and more we slow down, the more and more we can hear others speaking to us, asking for our friendship, asking for our patience, asking for our kindness. kindness. And naturally, our empathy will inspire us to respond to that. Friendship is our true nature. And the more and more we commit to befriending ourselves and others, whether we know them or not. Again, in the Buddhist community, anyone who comes through that door is to be seen and treated as a friend. In the community, the Sangha itself, the members of the Sangha, made up of both monks and laypersons, practitioners and supporters, all are considered members of one family. One for all, all for one, is our slogan we live by. We need to bring this perspective of life and each other into our daily activity more often. If we are ever to expect the world to change and move from its existing paradigm of self-centeredness and selfishness. It is up to us to change the world by being the change we want the world to be, by being friend to each other. You're up. <laughs> Any questions? Any thoughts?
tough one. Perhaps we can begin by being honest with ourselves. And I don't need to know the answers to this, but you need to know. In the course of the day, today, just one day, how, could, how would you have possibly maybe taken someone for granted because you were in a hurry, because you were preoccupied with your own needs? It could be someone you know, it could be a friend, it could be a stranger, it could be the world. How often in our own suffering do we kind of like phase out of the reality that life is suffering all over this planet and that we are not alone. We certainly, not any one of us, myself included, have a monopoly on it. And how would the world be if every morning we woke up and possibly meditated on that fact? That in my household, my spouse, my sibling, my child may be suffering. Today, I will consider that possibility and do whatever I can to help them free themselves from that suffering. And then extend that thought. Today in my neighborhood, there is a family somewhere suffering, perhaps from the loss of a loved one, perhaps from an accident or an unexpected sudden tra tragedy and then extend that even further. Most certainly throughout the world, we are aware. You cannot turn on the news without becoming aware that there is suffering everywhere on this planet. And if we were to just simply think about that, take a moment each day to think about that. When the spiritual community comes together in meditation, the teacher encourages them to remember that they do not sit alone or for themselves alone. That with each breath, we include all sentient beings. With each inhalation, we wish for their healing and renewal. And with each exhalation, we wish for their freedom from suffering and its causes. We need to bring to mind right thought. And right thought is always loving, kind, and compassionate even when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel like it. I cannot tell you of the times that I needed to remind myself in the past year battling with cancer in my bedroom from the chemotherapy and so forth, to stop being so consumed by my own suffering and to make a prayer for each of you, for my community, for the Sangha, for my supporters and my friends, not one day well, maybe one. Did I forget to pray for you? Not because I'm someone special, but because I'm someone that has fully realized, and especially in this last year, with all of your kindness and support you sent my way, that we are related, that we are family. What will it take for you to make that shift from a self-centered and I don't want you to hear that as a bad word. We get lost in self-centeredness. The Buddha talked about ignorance as the cause of suffering. And when he explained that second noble truth, 
He spoke about us forgetting, as if we fall into some amnesic state and forget who we are. And in forgetting who I am, I automatically forget who you are. And we find ourselves trapped and preoccupied with this self that feels and thinks and wants and desires. But this is why we enter spiritual life. We become part of a spiritual community. And if you're not, you should be. Become part of this spiritual community. We enter the spiritual life and become part of a spiritual community to work on this self-centeredness so that we can bring about the causes for our liberation and in turn bring about the causes for all sentient beings' liberation. We need right speech. We need to tell each other more often, I love you. We need to tell each other more often, I value your presence. Earlier today, I was in the company of my 90-year-old father. And throughout this year, not only did I reflect about how I could improve my relationship with my community and each of you, my friends and supporters, but how I could improve my relationship with him. Because he's 90 years old. And as much as we talk about him living to 100, there will always be the next year. You know and so as I sit in his company, I think about, as you heard, the fifth that the Buddha talked about to measure. I think about the true nature of impermanence. When I think of each of you and you leave here tonight, before I fall asleep at night, I say a prayer in appreciation that I got to see you. Because I may not see you the next time. Because everything is of the nature of impermanence. So we need right thought and right speech. And that right speech needs to be the language. We need those encouraging conversations that the Buddha talked about. Inspiring words to each other. And maybe they can be simply as, I missed you today. We need right action. We need to stop being afraid of touching one another. We need to hold one another and give each other that hug and that encouraging, you know, handshake or however way you may express yourself to another. We need to be about the business of doing these things if we expect the world to change. The more we hide in and hover in our circles of fear, the more we give power to those who would rather have it another way. The more we hold back the words of loving kindness and compassion, the more we will hear the words of discrimination and injustice. And the more we are unwilling to become intimate with our friend, with our spouse, with our siblings, with our neighbor, with life as a whole, the more we will become caught up in this feeling of separation and detachment. We alone can bring ourselves back into communion with each other. And in bringing ourselves back into communion with each other, we find ourselves in communion with the universe, with God or Buddha, whichever you prefer. But we ourselves must be about the business of bringing that about.
Hi. So you reminded me that on uh, Facebook, I don't know if anybody else saw it, they had a, um, a short video, I believe it was a Palestinian school uh, in Israel, and what they showed was the every morning the students, they're probably 10 years old, they line up in front of the teacher at, before they come into the classroom, and on the wall is a, is a, uh, a drawing, so it's a, a handshake, a heart that represents a hug, a fist bump, <coughs> and a high five. And every student, so every student comes up and touches one of the symbols and then does that with the teacher. Either a hug, a handshake, a fist bump, or a high five. She does that every morning with all her students. It's very cute. Very cute. Hi, Lou. This is what um, I think I'm starting to get lost on. I had a lot of friends and family. Um, unfortunately, in my side of the family, uh, we've lost a lot of uh, relatives. I loved them. We never even had to talk. We could be in the room and just for the presence of the person. It's almost like a vortex of energy. And you didn't have to talk to them, and you just know you were loved. But then, I would say, last six years, I've lost a lot of close friends. I should have died a long time ago from, because I was so sick with, and I didn't. And sometimes I wonder, maybe I should, because now, if you talk to someone, no matter how funny you, you try to be, you have this thing in their ear, they're listening to, to something on their phone, or you're talking to them and they're playing with the phone. You go out to dinner, and instead of someone talking, you have a group of somebody to make friends with, and they're on the phone again. That's what I don't understand. It's like you see that big separation. They're so into this thing. It's a phone. They're so in love with it that they seem to forget about everybody around. I never keep my phone around me. My car, my phone's either in the car or at home. I never carry it with me anymore. I see too much of that. And I even see, uh, I know my nephew too did that. And my, my uh, sister said, you're with family. I want you to shut that phone off. You talk to us. Don't don't just play with your phone. And her daughter was upset because that was his uh, death. She was really upset because she was taking the phone away from him. But this thing now, it seems to me, people are so lost with this damn thing. You can't even talk to them. If you, like I said, you talk to them, and they have that thing in your ear. They're hearing another conversation or they're in a group, they're discussing. Instead of listening to what this person's talking about, they're hurting. And what they're doing? Playing with the phone. What do you say? What do you do? I mean, it's... There's nothing you need to say or do because their behavior is not what matters. What matters is lose. It's always about, as I've told my students over the years, we need to stop being so preoccupied in the way other people are and ask ourselves the only essential question that matters. Who do I want to be today in the world? Who do I want to be? And again, uh, in answering that question, we live our lives that way despite whatever way anyone else is living, despite that way. Just as you spoke about your family we have that, I have that same experience with the monks and members of this community when we meditate in silent for long hours, 
there is that unspoken bond that you feel. If you can feel that bond in silence with, with people, that's certainly sufficient. We're not called to make other people loving and kind. We are called to be loving and kind ourselves. So again, my answer to what you said is I'm not interested in taking that thing out of their ear. I'm interested in being who I want to be in the world today. And I believe that just as in the silence of your family, where there may have never been a word spoken of love or an act committed of love, and you still knew that, I believe that in the power of one person, one person choosing to love despite those social norms that I, I, I understand, I, I see it to myself every day, uh, despite those social norms that have come to be acceptable today, something will change just by my being loving in the world. Anyone else? Yeah. Unfortunately, in our culture, people don't listen to one another. I, have, I feel the same way about the cell phone. But I remember when growing up, there was no cell phone. There are people that listen and there are people that don't. And the people that don't listen just distract themselves and, and you know that they're not listening. They may be looking at you, but their mind is somewhere else. We don't really listen to one another. And that's sad. Yes. That's part of our culture today. But it's all, I think, I don't know if it's just today, but that's what so I'm saying. So what is the solution to this? You see, it's often, I, I rarely watch the news anymore. My doctor told me to stop watching the news, so I've stopped watching the news. But I can remember times watching the news, and the, new, and, and the people presenting the news are, are telling us what we already know. The world is messed up. We've got some serious problems, and they're centered in our ability to be relational to one another. So we find ourselves finding refuge in, you know, technology and all of that. But as Ellen said, I can remember people not listening to me when I was young too, when there was no such thing as modern technology and so forth. So what I'm interested in hearing is, again, back to that context, with that fact of life, how do you intend to be in the world? Because that is the only solution. Do you trust yourself enough that you believe that somehow, just by your persistence, despite how others may not be listening, you're going to be a listener? Despite how others may not be kind, you're going to be kind. Despite however the world is, you're going to be. That's what I would like to know. I, uh I'm so glad everybody's talking about the phone because I had a situation with the phone where I lost mine in New York last week. And what a blessing it was. It really was. So I didn't want to speak about the phone. But uh, I uh, do a sharing of my energy. I don't call it teaching. And in the sharing of the energy, it's in an aquatic situation. So we're in the water. And at the end of uh, the session, uh, I uh, do something like uh, just fanning my hands out along the surface of the water. And this is group setting. We're all doing this. And we're sending love, peace, 
and safety into the world. Now there's ripples that are going to infinity. And that's our thought and our wish and our desire at that time. And uh, I don't know how that came to me to say those words. I know that I believe in sending out the good energy and receiving the good energy. For myself, the practice of modifying or correcting certain characteristics or behaviors go along the principle of patience and tolerance. The patience to really hear another person's speaking. But what are they saying? A little more deeper meaning. And to intently listen, to be present to the moment in time. I love the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, as he says, each breath, a new life. And when you were leading us in that meditation, those are some of the sensations I was feeling. And um, so I think it's uh, like works in progress. And um, if uh, in any way to be some not want a, a saint or an angel or even a bodhisattva, but a signpost as we walk in the presence of the world. Of every if I smile, mm -hmm. if I smile, usually to a stranger, the smile comes back. Mm -hmm. So those are the moments, just fleeting moments. And that to me is a connection of uh, worldwide an anonymous friendship that goes like the ripples of the water to infinity. Of everything you said, the key word that jumped out at me was intently, to act with intention. So when, uh, assuming I understand what you mean when you talk about intently listening, I too make it a point that when someone is speaking to me to make eye contact, and to try to not only hear their words, but see their words in their body language, see their words in their facial expression. So my intention, as is your intention, is to be fully present to that person, no matter who they may be, whether they be friend or foe, whether they be stranger or relative, to stop with the intention to be present to them, no matter how much in a hurry I may be to get somewhere. So I think this word intention is absolutely part of the vocabulary we need when we are considering how we can cultivate wholesome behavior in our lives. We must have the intention to do it. We must have the intention to work on ourselves. One becomes part of a spiritual community not because what that community may have to offer them, either in programs or in, or in friendships or anything else for that matter. But one enters a spiritual community with the intention to work on their lives with the members of that community in relationship to that community. This is what we call right intention. Having the right intention in our relationships with each other, which so far what I've heard tonight is, is to be heard, 
and to listen to someone to hear others. Not only do I want to be heard, but I want to hear others as well. You're seeing. Not only do I want people to take the time to listen to me, but I want to take the time to listen to others as well. Intention is everything. Making it our intention to be the tool for the transformation in the world is absolute, without which nothing is possible. Thank you, Cass. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm a clinician, and what I see sometimes is people that are high-powered, and, and the, <coughs> some of them are uh, artists and musicians, classical musicians or musicians, and they've, now they're at 45 or 50, and all of them are depressed. And I, I share with them that I grew up in none of the technology existed. And we had the luxury of having these long moments of silence that we got accustomed to. There was no cell phones. You know, if the people didn't reach you at home, you didn't get a call, okay? We were accustomed to not being, everything so sensational, okay? So we developed this capacity, or at least we got introduced to what it is to just be. And these are really, highly skilled, educated people. And a lot of them, like I said, are artists in that, but when they got into the world, they got pulled into forgetting that, or say the younger ones, didn't even have the opportunity to have all these pauses. So it's very difficult for them to be with themselves. And I think that's part of what the injury that the technology is doing that people don't realize what it's doing to them. They are so distracted that someday it's going to pull the rug out from under. Yeah. Einstein said that he feared the day that technology will surpass humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to capture that appreciation of silence. Mm -hmm. That and you know I hear Lou sharing too with his family. That, you know, often we jokingly talk about how, you know, when we have evenings like tonight, we see people. When we have opportunities to sit in silence, we see much fewer people and so forth. And there is a real lack of the appreciation of silence uh, in our culture as a whole. And, you know, people look for the sensationalism in meditation. You know, they're looking for that moment you know, when, when they're meditating that they're going to have this maybe, you know, very spiritual experience. Um, so, si- you know, as, as almost a hermit, mm-hmm. as I live my life here alone in the monastery, none of the monks live with me, uh, an appreciation of silence, uh, I think, is another essential part of the whole person. Learning to be present to one another and hear each other in that silence, feel each other in that silence, and so forth. I know that there were times in my experience with fighting cancer over the year that there were times I didn't want anybody talking to me, but I wanted somebody near me, mm-hmm. you see. And I think in those moments that I got to experience that, there was more said between me and the other party than if we were having an hour-long conversation. So I, I agree, we need to cultivate the ground of silence within ourselves. 
We need to meditate. We need to meditate when we are alone at home, and we need to meditate with a group in order to appreciate the power of silence and, and the conversation that goes on in that silence. Yeah. Thank you. So you reminded me one of my teachers coined the phrase socialized meditation. <laughs> socialized meditation. There's a, uh, there's a book called Hamlet's Blackberry. Mm -hmm. And it traces the horror that society felt, like we were talking about the horror with cell phones and yes. the technology, for the development of Greek culture, for the development of science, the development of the printing press. In other words, it shows the writings from those times that when those things came on the scene, all the stuff we're saying about what's going to happen to society because of the cell phones and people aren't talking to each other anymore, that's what was going to happen because now we have a printing press and people are going to stick with these darn books and nobody's going to talk to each other anymore. So uh, I just want to point out that it's not new. Uh, the technology obviously is. But the attitude that we have towards it is not new. And the cure, as, as we've been, every time somebody asks a question, Roshi, and says, well, so what do we do about it? What keeps flashing in my head is the answer, <coughs> you come here. That's what you do about it. You come to us, and you learn to do what we do. And you, you join us in doing what we do, and hopefully influence the world in a, popular, in a, in, in, in a, in a better, better way. I often say to people that the reason why you have a problem meditating for any lengthy period of time has nothing to do with the time commitment involved or the posture or any of the other part of the technique. It has to do with the fact that you don't believe that your mere presence is power. You have forgotten that your mere presence was powerful enough as a newborn child to bring a whole family together, and probably parts of that family that never spoke to each other or rarely spoke to each other prior to your birth. You have forgotten that your mere presence was powerful enough to have a whole family committed to taking care of your needs and helping you to grow. So again, we need to develop an appreciation that comes only out of entering into silence, individually and collectively with others, of the power of just being present to one another. I have never felt more intimate, and my monks, I'm sure, will back me up on this, I have never felt more intimate with another human being than I have felt over the years in those times of Orahatsu Sashin, where by the third day of meditation, your body is aching, your mind is frazzled, and you hear someone across the room take a deep breath, and you know you're not alone. And you know that there's a deep connection there. And you go on, not because you have any evidence or proof, but because faith in just being present and allowing others to be present to you in silence is a powerful way of being in the world. Don't you agree? Yes, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you they'd agree with me. Yeah. Hi, Len. 
it, it's so ironic that it, it, it seems we're set up from, I think, three months in utero to like six or seven to be extremely judgmental on ourselves, to be extremely critical of ourselves. And so then, as the rabbi says, what do we do about that? And that's the question, but it, it seems to me what you're alluding to, and it's, it's, it's really interesting and powerful, is within that silence there must be something going on. There's an energy or something that, if that can be distilled, if that can be really recognized and acknowledged, maybe that's what's needed to take us over. That's the beginning. Yeah. And the paradox is the only way that distillment can happen, that recognition can happen, is by experience. You can only get this by doing it. You can only receive that energy by being in its presence, and you can only be in its presence in silence. I used to say to my Catholic brothers and sisters, in order for you to hear God, you have to shut up. I say, I say you have to be quiet. I say, and so, yes, there is something going on, and that something going on cannot be taught by any teacher, cannot be taught by the Dalai Lama, cannot be taught by any saint. You can experience it on your own in community with others, and you can know it for yourself fully, but any effort on my part to try to convince you of that is futile. It's futile. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, you know, I, I, used to, I used to tell a story when I was in, years ago as a young man, I, I came through Las Vegas. And at Caesar's Palace, they had a fluorescent sign that uh, flashed outside 24 hours a day and it said, you have to come in to win. <laughs> you have to come in to win. You have to sit and meditate and be part of a community devoted to that silence in order to know it. It's, or as Chaman says, you gotta come here. You know? And not just when I'm talking. Ken <laughs> Joshi. So I, I keep thinking of this, surrender keeps popping into my head. And uh, you know, I belong to a group and uh, through different periods of, of time in the group, they give out these little coins, you know, so they come up and, and at the end of it they say, would anybody else like to come up and surrender? Some people say it like that. And I always chuckle at it, because I've never met a human that's willing to surrender until everything else is finished, <laughs> until every other option is gone. And, uh, and, and really, you know, this idea of surrendering my beliefs, surrendering my opinions, surrendering all these these things that block me, I can't see that until they actually start blocking me enough, you know? And, uh, so the process of not only walking in a place like this, but then staying here is really, it's, it's a pretty amazing process, what has to go through the mind to see that. And, uh, but, I, but I love that we, that we can sit and share about it, that we can sit and really talk about what it looks like, but we can't give it to you. We can only show you what it might look like. What it what it really is can only be can only be seen here. 
And that journey, that process that Genjo uses the term for, can only be traveled with faith. I cannot give you the evidence of it. I've already said that. No one can give you the evidence of it. It is an experience that can only be known by stepping into it, by experiencing it yourself alone and in community with others. Faith is, you know, I remember from Catholic school, the definition of faith is the belief in something that cannot be proven or seen or tangible. Okay. So the journey involves long hours, and it is a process, as Genjo talks about it. This transformation is a process, and it begins with confronting yourself. And here's where a word that Emio likes to use a lot to describe authentic spiritual practice, intimacy, is involved. One must first be willing to become quite intimate with oneself. And in order to be intimate with anyone, you have to be willing to be honest. And to be honest with yourself, you know, back to something that I heard when Len was sharing about how we are kind of condemned to this self-criticism and self-judgment. The transformation begins when you are willing through faith to trust what I'm about to tell you. That there is not a single critical thing you can say about yourself or others and that there's not a single judgment you can make about yourself or others to which there is any proof or evidence. So the practice that I often give people who seem to be caught up in self-criticism and self-judgment is that every time you find the mind playing that game, you stop and say, just another lie. Just another lie. Until you get it that it is just another lie. Buddhism teaches that our basic goodness, that true nature we talk a lot about, never changes. It is the one thing that is not of the nature of impermanence. That our true nature, that fundamental loving kindness, compassionate and benevolent soul or heart, whatever you wish to call it, never changes. And that no matter how many times you do it wrong, it doesn't change. You do not fall out of grace. So it, again, a willingness to be honest with oneself. Show me the proof. Show me the evidence. Every criticism you have of yourself and others and every judgment you have of yourself and others didn't begin with you. You learned it. And whatever you learned, you can unlearn. If you put the time and work into unlearning it. There is no magic. And the only secret is there is no secret, you're saying. There is no magic to this. It's not going to come down from some saint or angel in heaven to you. You need to realize it for yourself, and that requires a willingness on your part to put in the time and the effort to realize it. And it is work. After 44 years, it's still work for me. And on the day the Buddha was dying, he looked at his monks and students and said, today I am still only a beginner. I am still only a beginner. Now I'm about to begin something new. 
Anyone else? It's okay. Rosie, I was I was just thinking about um, when I first started this journey about three years ago. I would drive every day. Well, each time um, here, and a million things would be going through my mind, you know, and I would just come anyway. And I remember you used to say, "Just show up." You know, and I didn't know it would lead to me being a lay monk today, you know, and um, I was just thinking about the path, you know, and how this community has changed my life and how when you say friendship and relationships, you know, if you had said that back then, it's like relationships, oh, forget it, you know? But it's true community here. Everyone cares about everyone, you know? Everyone knows if I'm having a rough time, you know? And is so supportive from their heart, you know? Everyone just cares. And uh, when you say, talk about friendship, the thing that comes to me is not the stuff that sometimes will show up anyway in my head. It's like from my heart, you know, just when I think of friendship, I think about my heart and, you know, what I feel like what I've learned here, sharing it with everyone you know, um, and like I'll say, like things change all the time and there's been some, like maybe these, some transformation, I guess, of this heart. Um, when I come from the place of my heart, I'm, can extend this out, like in my family, more patience and love and kindness there, yeah. you know, instead of, know. you know, how I could be sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, like that, you know, like, you know, even, I'll use the example today, my daughter is here, which I'm very happy, and, you know, she's having a rough time, and I, you know, usually I'm like, gotta be here on time, you know, so she's one, she has to take her time and do this and that, you know, I'm one, I don't have, I'm not into that, but I didn't start and say, you know, because I know it throw over the edge, so, <laughs> really, you know, okay, we have a deadline, we gotta get out of here, like that, didn't start, okay, and so I'm just finding in my home, using a what I've learned here, you know, a little more compassionate and caring and going for my heart. I do that instead of this, yeah. you know, other stuff. And um, I don't know, I just feel really thankful, you know, to feel like my heart is free. Thank you. You know, just free to be able to 
and I, and I look forward to being like to be able to love people, just everybody. You know, just having everybody in this room just to love and care about everybody. You know, everyone. I got just, it. Yeah, just <laughs> everyone. You know, no matter what. That transformation, and it's a term that's used so often in conversations about spirituality, is really nothing more than moving from the head to the heart. And that's the most difficult thing for most people to do. It's the most difficult thing for most people to do, to operate from the heart rather than the head. What did uh, David Brooks say in his uh, indictment of our society? We have seen a shocking rise in mental illness, suicide, and distrust, especially among the young people. We have become too cognitive when we should be more emotional. Imagine that challenge. <coughs> Imagine if you knew today that you needed to move from your head to your heart in order to be truly happy. Would you be willing to do it so easily? We have all been injured and hurt in our lifetime. And so there's that wound that constantly reminds us, no, not too emotional. Don't let them see the emotions. Now, I use this next statement lightly. What you need is cancer. Because during the year, everything, everything fit. What I mean by that, I think I was you know, I've been told by my monks that I'm a lot more emotional than I've ever been, you say. And perhaps that helped some other people to be more emotional. So we need to get out of our heads with the criticism and the judgment of ourselves and of the world and move into our hearts. And the heart is the place of intelligence. It is the source of our transformation and the transformation of the world, as Butsuka has said. What she gained here in her heart, she was able to communicate in her family and elsewhere. So we need to get out of our heads with criticism and judgment of ourselves and others and move to that place where we are more emotional, where we are more expressive, where we are more honest with ourselves and others. Hi. 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 Um, what struck me when you were talking when you said that you come together as a community and sometimes there's people that in the outside world you wouldn't be able to get along, you would avoid them because they're a difficult personality, mm -hmm. but when you're in a community you deal with them each time they come. Um, and I think that's been a problem for me in my life is when I have a difficult person, I'll work with them, try to work with them, and, but then I'll reach my breaking point and I'll just be like, enough, you know, and I'll push them away. Mm -hmm. And then, then I'll miss certain parts of that person. Yeah. Then when I try to get them back, they've been wounded by my pushing them away. They don't want to come back. Yeah. So... I think that um, being more patient and less judgmental and maybe pacing myself a little better mm -hmm. 
I think all three of them are good advice. Maybe not push people away and lose the good part, like drawing out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. Now, in a Zen community, the way you deal with that personality that you would ordinarily try to avoid is in silence again. Here we come back to the power of silence. You, you, you don't communicate your dislike of them, okay? You work with it in silence. You feel the impatience you might have for them. You feel the indifference you might have for them. You feel whatever the obstructing emotion is that you might have about them. And you experience it in your meditation. You experience it in your own silence until it disappears. Because there's a, uh, there's a law of physics that says uh, whatever you persist, whatever you resist will persist. And eventually you become. So it's about fully experiencing that impatience in silence with yourself. That's how you work on it in community. And then when you find yourself able to communicate in a way that is beneficial for both of you, that's when you talk. But you learn that only in silence. You know? and, and again, in ordinary life, whenever we have our feelings hurt by someone, we feel we got to say something. We, f we have to react to it. In community, you learn to be quiet with that reaction until the reaction no longer has you. And, and a word for that is patience. Patience is keeping quiet. Patience is learning to wait. Thank you. Good to see you both. Katie's loving her horseback riding. And I am too. <laughs> Anyone else? Just one other thing that uh, you were saying, we have to first recognize and feel love for ourselves, and that we can communicate that love for someone else, but a lot of us don't feel the love for ourselves. And find it difficult to communicate that for others. Right. Yeah. So uh, since I do a lot of physical exercise, uh, one of the exercises that I do in a closure of a class again is to give yourself a great big body hug. Hold your body and say, thank you for serving me so well today. Mm. Mm. That a lot of people in the class really enjoy. Mm. And I really feel that as an energy person, that energy is being directed to all. Because if they can do that and I can do that, that brings a certain amount of goodness. And again, the intent is that you can then go forth. And if you have healed your own body with love, you can give love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are all a work in progress. And we will be a work in progress all the way to the grave. Because we are always becoming. Death is nothing other than becoming something more. So we are all a work in progress. And we need to begin to recognize that every day, learning to be patient with ourselves, forgive ourselves, and yes, appreciate ourselves. But not in that self-centered way where we don't appreciate others. 
So another practice that a friend of mine uh, commits each day is when you wake up in the morning is to write, she writes down her list of gratitudes. But she does it in a way that she is impressed that these things were given to her in her life for her benefit. So perhaps you can start to count your blessings and recognize that those who have given you those blessings in your life gave them to you because they saw something in you that maybe you don't see in yourself. I can only give to you what I have. If I want to be more loving in the world with others, I need to be more loving in my own world with myself. Anyone else? Thank you, guys. Hi. Hi. Um, What's your name? My name is Dakota. Hi, Dakota. This is the first time I've come here, so thanks, first of all, for including me. I'm appreciating a lot of what you've been saying. Um, I, I identified with um, something you said about moving from the head to the heart. Um, I feel like that's something I struggle with a lot. Um, I'm someone who's very focused on problem solving, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I work with, I'm a very technical person. I work in tech, I work with engineers. Um, so that's a skill that I've developed to be very strong over the years. But I think I, I have trouble when I bring that into my personal life. I, I, I treat myself like a problem to be solved. I treat other people like problems to be solved. And I think in that context, in my you know, idle personal time, and I don't know what to do about that because I think it harms my relationships. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the thing that will cure that the most is meditation. The more you practice being in the silence, the more the mind and the body hungers for that silence. And meditation creates clarity. By that I mean it clarifies that there's a place for your technical mind in your life, but not in matters of the heart. The heart does not rely on the cognitive mechanisms of our body for its solutions. So there's, there's a place and a time to be an engineer, and there's a place and a time not to be, and that's always in the matters of the heart. The heart can only be resolved through that silence. You know, going back to what Len said, whatever that is that's going on in the silence is speaking to the heart, not to the, not to the mind. And yet, when the heart is healed and renewed by that experience, the mind and the body is also healed and renewed. But the pathway is through the heart. So you need to get a bit more discriminatory as to when you bring thought into the matter. And again, matters of the heart do not require thought. They require courage to act. They require faith to act. <coughs> And they require patience and all of the things we've been talking about, but not our cognitive answers to, and solutions to things. But I, I can have both. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, of, I often say to people, it's stupid to go through life half-assed no matter what cheek you're left with. <laughs> so we need both. Okay? We need both. But you, what it seems is that you need the wisdom to know when the one is inappropriate for the other. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. 
uh, going from the head to the heart, when you start to have actual bodily experiences of impermanence, you're open to your own vulnerability, but, all, but you're open to everybody else's vulnerability. Yeah. So when the young lady said that she was aware that she injured that person's heart, it actually allows you to put before that difficult person their own woundedness. Yeah. Yeah. But Thanks. you know, it, it takes great courage. So if you've lost in your life and you can get in touch with that, that might be a stepping stone to bringing the wisdom to your life. Yeah. In ordinary life, we avert and avoid mm -hmm. those experiences. Yet those experiences are the most important teachers in our life. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah. We need to experience the grief. We need to experience the, fa the failure. We need to experience the loss. Yeah. If we have anything to offer anybody. If we have anything to offer anybody. Yeah, because at that time, our mind fails us. Yeah. And yet it's a failure. Yeah, yeah. 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 I realized that having cancer this past year was the most horrible thing I ever experienced in my life, but the most important teacher that I've ever had in my life. Well, that's all I got. <laughs> Any announcements before we leave? Roshi, may I speak? Hmm. Yeah, we talked a lot about silence today, and the second Saturday of June, uh, you can come and join the monks. Uh, we're going to be spending the whole day here, um, the silence of the Zendo, and then conversation uh, afterwards. So you're all welcome to uh, attend. And you're all invited to become members. Membership in a Zen community does uh, does not preclude one's religious affiliations or belief systems. So it's the most inclusive community that you will ever uh, experience. And membership can take the posture of a monk or a layperson. What makes up our community is a gathering of both the monastic and the lay people, a gathering of practitioners and supporters. I like something I heard Chamon say the other night, uh, if you can't make it, you can be connected by supporting us, and so forth. That connection between us is infinite, using a word that Cassie used, and so forth. So I would like to welcome you and invite you to consider becoming members of the community, and events like Emio just described will be more available to you also. Chamon? Genjo? Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So once again, thank you for the privilege of being with you tonight. Everyone please run. Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life.
I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.